When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by Macmillan, a publisher of children's books including Tractor Mac. A favorite of families across the country, Tractor Mac depicts life on the farm through fun and heartwarming stories about friendship, teamwork, and more. Tractor Mac is on sale now from Farrar Strauss Giroux. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 7th, 2015, the Xenomorph Mom Edition. I'm Dan Coyce, I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is now ten. Oh, happy birthday, Lyra. Hooray! I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and the mom of Harry, six, Sam, four, and Wally, two. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dan. On today's episode, we will talk to the novelist and critic Gabriel Roth about picture books that introduce the concept of mortality to little kids. Then for Mother's Day, we'll discuss the best moms in pop culture history with the help of Slate's culture team. Plus, Triumphs and Fails, our first live show, a contest, and more. If you are a fan of Mom and Dad are Fighting, please tell a friend. This week, I would love for you to find an online-only friend, someone who you've barely met in person, but you you know, you know just hit it off with them on Facebook or on Twitter or by sexting or however. I think many of us have people like this in our lives. I definitely do. Um, and so I want you to please tell one of them about Mom and Dad are Fighting because we want more listeners because more listeners mean that I can feed my growing children caviar and lobster tails. No. More listeners means we can do more and better live events around the country, and we are very excited to announce our first live show. It is Sunday, June 7th at Motor Co. in Durham, North Carolina. We are headed down to the Triangle for a live show at Motor Co. in Durham. We will be joined by Mac McCowan of Merge Records and Superchunk. Allison, am I saying his last name right? I have actually never said it out loud. I just realized right now. I, I, I think it's McCon, but I'm not. McCon? McCon? Yeah. We are joined by Mac of Merge and Superchunk. <laughs> he is going to talk to us about indie rock parenting and, I hope, also play some songs. Tickets will go on sale soon for this show on Sunday, June 7th in Durham, North Carolina. For more information, go to slate.com slash live. Get your RV ready. Bring the Get whole family. Your, bring everyone. 
bring it. Even if you're not in the triangle, come to the show. And if you are a fan of Slate, please join Slate Plus. You will get bonus podcast segments like ours this week, uh, which will be Gabe Roth reading his amazing piece about children's books. Plus exclusive podcasts like our amazing history of slavery slate Academy with Jamel Bowie and Rebecca onion, a nine part podcast series that launches later this month. It is great. And it is only for members of slate plus go to www.slate.com slash fighting plus to sign up. Let me just add that sexting about mom and dad are fighting will not get you to your desired result. Uh, who, what depends what the desired result is. Is it more listeners for us? Then maybe it will. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's go to triumphs and fails. Allison, what do you got this week? I have a triumph. Uh, Hooray! Yeah. So there's been a recess situation, an RS, at Harry's school lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry mentioned it to me in passing a few times, but the other day I picked him up from school, which I rarely get to do, and he poured his heart out to me. I don't know about you, but when I get home from work and I say, how was your day? It's like I get nothing. Yeah. But for some reason, picking him up at you know 2.30, I got a lot. Uh, which made me wonder how much I'm missing. But the short version is that a boy in Harry's class who is clearly a nice kid and a good kid, but also popular and therefore powerful, had started holding what he's calling the national championships of soccer every day during recess. (laughs) Oh, man. And declaring that the teams are best versus worst. (laughs) This kid is a kid after my heart, man. (laughs) So... Harry says the kid told him he had to be on Team Worst, and he was very frustrated about it. I was a little bit like, he might be right. <laughs> but Allison. <laughs> John was also mad at me for saying that. Anyway, the day I picked him up from school, he started asking me all of these questions about, like, he was essentially trying to figure out social dynamics. He genuinely, I guess he's, I don't know, he's in first grade. I don't know if he's naive or if this is the time when you wonder these things, but he genuinely wanted to understand why this kid got to make all the decisions why other kids listen to him, and how he knows who's good at soccer and who isn't. And, you know, I talked to him about standing up to this kid, but he was reluctant to do it because he wants the kid to like him, which I get. And I told him about my own experiences trying to get Jennifer Bucci to like me. And Jennifer, if you're a listener right now, <laughs> Allison turned out great. <laughs> We're Facebook friends. It's fine. Okay, good. Anyway, after all this, Harry came up with the idea that instead of standing up to this kid, he just wanted to bring his own soccer ball to school and try to start his own game, which I thought was pretty awesome. But I also thought it could lead to soul-crushing disappointment. Yeah. And I told him this. We talked about it. And I said, like, other kids might not want to leave the national championships (laughs) to play in your game. Uh, But I'd be proud of him (laughs) if he tried. And I'd be proud of him if he decided not to, because I know when the moment came to actually, like, try to round up other kids, he might, you know, get scared or not want to do it. And I don't even need to tell you the result. <laughs> I mean, I can because you probably want to know. But the reason I'm considering this a triumph is it was actually my first real experience dealing with like these elementary school social dynamics. And though like it seemed easiest to say, like, just find other kids to play with or screw that kid. I didn't because it's not that easy. And I walked away kind of feeling like he got something from our conversation, which I'm not always confident of. And, you know, I felt like, oh, I just taught a human being something <laughs> and helped a human being through something and that was very very gratifying that i think is a great triumph and now he is the national champion <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> what a happy ending for everyone uh, i also have a triumph this week my triumph is that i handled a children's health emergency <laughs> with a plum 
and a strong stomach. Allison knows I the saw photographic opening. evidence of this. Uh, we're going to put the photographic evidence on our show page for all to see. Um, okay, so uh, I was working from home the other day, as was Alia, and we got a call, or rather, her phone rang, and she didn't answer it. It was the nurse. And then my phone rang, and I did answer it. And it was the nurse telling us that Harper, our younger daughter, had stapled her finger somehow that there was a staple in her finger so far that the nurse could not get it out. So could I please come to school and deal with it? And I grumbled a little bit about what are nurses for if they can't get staples out of your children's <laughs> fingers. But then I went, I went to the school and when I got there, I saw her finger and I am proud that I did not barf. And also I saw why the nurse was not able to get the staple out because the staple was all the way through her index finger. <sighs> All the way through so far that it would have poked out the other side of her index finger, except for that the back of her, the underside of her fingernail had stopped it from doing so. What was she stapling? What was that? She was stapling her finger, Allison. <laughs> she, I asked her how it happened, and she said that she was checking to see if the stapler had staples in it. So she opened it all the way up, and she saw that it had staples, and then she closed it. But when she closed it, her finger was underneath it, and so it slammed down on her finger. Ugh. She was not intentionally doing it, she says. I believe her. She's not actually a kid who likes to experiment in that way with trying stuff out the way that, for example, I did when I was a kid and I just actually stapled myself because I wanted to see what it was like. So it was gross. I didn't barf. And um, and I also made a great health care decision, which is often hard to do in the heat of the moment. I tried once with tweezers to pull on it gently to see whether I could just get it out. And it clearly caused her a lot of pain. So I stopped. And I thought, okay, well, where should I take her? And I didn't want to take her to the emergency room because that would take forever and be unbelievably expensive. And then I would have to get in a big fight with our insurance company. And so I thought maybe there, maybe what about urgent care? Is there an urgent care nearby? And it turned out there is. There's an urgent care very close to our kid's school. I went there. There was no one waiting because it was in McLean, Virginia, where bad things never happen to anyone. So there was no one at urgent care except I wonder, us. I've been to an urgent care in your in your neck of the woods. I wonder if it's the same one. It was a very pleasant experience. Uh, well, this was also a pleasant experience. They took an x-ray to make sure that it wasn't too close to the bone. They numbed her finger with some shots, They, which she took like a champ. They pulled out the staple in one quick jerk. She didn't even feel it. She was so proud of herself, and I was proud of myself for only spending $270, which I'm now going to expense because I talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> And uh, all in all, it was it was as good an experience as you can hope for from putting a staple all the way through your finger. And I am proud of the way that I handled it, and I'm going to view it as a triumph. Good job. Although I do feel like $270 for getting a staple out of your finger is something. Well, that's something's wrong. What's wrong with America? It, it, there were like four shots of anesthetic, so just so Jeez. my precious daughter would not feel anything. Was she was, sobbing this whole time, or was she just like on no, the no? IPad? She was fine. I think it didn't actually hurt, except for when people were like wiggling it and trying right. to get it out. So she was fine. She like by the time we got to urgent care she thought it was like the funniest thing that had ever happened to her. Yeah. good job dan thanks um all right so let's move on to a word from our sponsor mcmillan children's books the fine publisher of children's books with many great imprints um they are the exclusive sponsor this week and we've been highlighting different mcmillan books every episode this week we want to highlight tractor mac 
by Billy Steers. It is a very popular series, a whole series of books by Billy Steers, who is an ex-Air Force pilot. And now, in fact, he is a commercial pilot. Um, he fly, he might be flying the jetliner you take to some amazing location. Um, but he is also the author and illustrator of the Tractor Mac series. Tractor Mac is a tractor who began as a character in stories that Billy and his wife, Julie, would tell their three young sons. And now, years later, Tractor Mac has become a new classic children's series, taking on a life of its own to become a favorite of families across the country. Tractor Mac's friends on the farm help him learn about friendship, teamwork, the joy of winning, and how to lose gracefully. These books for children accurately depict life on the farm through fun and heartwarming stories that are certain to delight the young reader, especially... And if you're listening right now, you have already probably called this book up because you know that your kid loves tractors. If your kid loves tractors, he or she will love Tractor Mac. On sale now from Firestraw Sheru, Books for Young Readers, an imprint of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Recently, the novelist Gabriel Roth bought a book for his young daughter called Alfie and the Birthday Surprise by Shirley Hughes, one of a charming British series of picture books about a little boy and his family. But the book, it turned out, had a very different surprise than Gabe expected. He wrote a great piece for the Slate Book Review this week about books that teach little kids about the darker parts of life, and he's here to talk to us today. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Dan. So, you bought this book for your daughter, whose name is? Uh, Eliza. Uh, And at this time, she was three, correct? That's right. So if you had guessed the plot of Alfie and the Birthday Surprise ahead of time before reading it, what would you have guessed? The, the Alfie books are about a, a three- or four-year-old boy in, in England. Uh, and I would have guessed that Alfie would be having a birthday and that he would want – he would be hoping or expecting some kind of special present, let's say a bicycle – and perhaps the story would lead him to expect that he wouldn't get the bicycle, but then in the end, he, he would receive the birthday surprise of the bicycle that he had hoped for, uh, and it would be very delighting to him. Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds like a great book. I, I was excited to read it. Yeah, and so what is the actual plot of Alfie and the birthday surprise as you discovered when you read it to your daughter? Well, so the birthday in question is not Alfie's birthday. It's the birthday of Bob McNally, who is the middle-aged man who lives across the street from Alfie's family. Bob McNally is very attached to his cat, Smokey. And a month or so before his, let's say, 50th birthday, Smokey <laughs> dies. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> and Bob McNally is sort of devastated by his grief for this cat. The The rest of the family mourns Smokey and they have a little backyard funeral and then life goes on. But Bob McNally can't really get over the death of, of Smokey. In order to cheer him up, his family and, and Alfie's family across the street plan a surprise party for him. And at the surprise party, they give him a new kitten. I don't know if a surprise party is actually what you would prescribe for someone who was suffering from persistent grief. But it works for Bob McNally, and he's he's very happy with the new kitten, and everything moves on. So you read this book to your daughter, who was three at the time. As you write in your piece, you at first thought that maybe you could sort of just gloss over the death, but it became clear to you that, in fact, that was the entire point of the story. Yeah. When, when we started reading it, she had not heard about death yet. It takes a minute to realize that death isn't something that we're born knowing about. But, you know, she's three and a half and nobody she knows has died. And so we reach the point in the story at which the cat dies. And I, I have to stop and, and sort of explain to her what that means in the course of getting through this book about Alfie. 
Did you consider just changing the story? I, I did. I, you know, as we all have the experience of yeah. reading children's books and sort of eliding things or, or, or rerouting around certain things. Uh, but it, it was pretty clear from the pictures that this cat was going to stay dead and that the <laughs> death of the cat was, was going to be a significant point in the plot. And I, I, I was not confident that I would be able to make it, uh, you know, a very, very sick cat and everybody was sad because he was so sick. Right. So I, I, I had to go for it. Um, and how did your daughter respond? Uh, you know, this is, I have a very distinct memory of when my older daughter sort of first came to grips with the notion that all things die, including her. How did your daughter respond? Well, the first difficulty she, that she had was a sort of conceptual difficulty. Like, what does it mean for a cat to die? You know, there's a cat walking around, meowing, being pet, eating its food, and now it's dead. What does that mean? Well, it's not moving anymore, and it's not you know, it doesn't respond to you petting it, but it's still there physically. How is the dead cat different from the live cat? Tough to explain without getting into a bunch of stuff about subjectivity and consciousness that gets very complicated for a three and a half year old. Really? I mean, for a 40 year old, it's yeah. pretty complicated. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How much um, easier would it have been to explain this if you could have talked about God? It would, I would imagine it would have been a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in God. My wife doesn't. It's just been the way we were going to do things. I mean, particularly, I suppose there's different conceptions of God. If Well, it gets more complicated than, than I had maybe first thought. It would be easier if you had a concept of heaven that allowed cats. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously cats go to hell. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, so I guess religion has its own sort of thorns, right, right? As, as a concept. Um, it, you know, if you could say now Smokey is in the sky and running on the clouds and playing and being pet by angels, then that would be weird. But, but I bet she would go with that as, right. as a story. But even I think a lot of believers in God and believers in heaven would have a hard time, um, you know, with pet heaven. Yeah. So in the piece, you end up talking about a bunch of other books that you read uh, that deal with death as a subject for kids. And this happened because your own dog died about a year later. Um, and tell us about some of those books and the, and the different ways that they dealt with the subject. Children's books, as you say, often deal with death especially books for little children, often deal with death through the context of the death of a pet. That just seems to be like a way that authors get into it. Yeah, and it, it makes sense because, you know, statistically for most people living in the United States, if they're little kids, the first deaths they're going to encounter are going to be of maybe their pet or maybe their grandparents. That's just sort of actuarial. The books that we saw, they typically tell that we looked at the pet ones particularly, uh, and, and they frequently for one thing, they frequently have names like, you know, a book about a cat dying. They don't have names like Alfie and the Birthday Surprise, which I think is a very sensible policy on the part of children's book publishers is to put death up there in the title so you don't stumble onto it by accident. But most of the books that we looked at, they tell the story of a kid who loves a pet and the, the animal dies and the kid doesn't understand, is sad, is angry, goes through all of the feelings that we have when things we love die. And then there's some sort of funeral or some sort of ceremony, and then the 
the kid, usually thanks to wise advice from a parent, uh, the kid is able to sort of process the grief and move on. So it's a, it, it's a genre of book that's a kind of how-to book for kids. It's, it's like the books that we've gotten for her that show her like your first day at school and here's the I stuff that happens. Yeah, all, the, all these books that show kids how to do stuff. Uh, there's, there's a whole genre of books that show them how to mourn and then how to move on. Uh, and and that seems valuable. What we had a harder time finding was the ones that explain those first, that answer those first questions that she had about, well, what is death anyway, and what does it mean for something to die? And that was trickier. It's a trickier book to write, I would imagine. Uh, we found one very good one called Lifetimes that addresses that. Yeah, that book seems amazing. That I looked at that after I edited your piece. I got a copy and looked at it, and it's a really sort of surprisingly zen and sophisticated way of dealing with this topic. It enters into it not with a dead pet or even a dead person, but it it enters into it by just starting with the, the broader concepts in a way that seems maybe even counterintuitive for the way that you typically teach kids things. But it talks about how uh, everything that lives has a lifetime, and that lifetime has a beginning and an ending as well. And you mentioned in your piece that that is a, very, a concept that is easy in the end for kids to grasp because they understand about things having beginnings and endings. And so the concept that a living thing, a plant or an animal, also has a beginning and an ending that sort of intuitively makes sense to them. And then there's the moment that you describe in the book where it's sort of the moment the whole entire book has been leading up to where you turn the page and you see these the two simple words. And people. Right. Sorry, and I should people? do that. With, there's a question mark, so I should, I should do that yeah, interrogatively. Yeah. And people? Right. And the book ends up being a very concrete, conceptual guide to this difficult subject, one that is hard, as you say, Gabe, to get kids to sort of grok, especially because there's so much – it's so freighted when we talk about it because we can't help but think about the – the horrible innocence that we are stealing from our children by conveying this this terrible concept to them. And it made me think about the role that books have in our lives for teaching us the things that maybe our parents don't always even realize we need to learn. And there were certain books that played that role for me at different points in my life. There were books that taught me about sex. There were books that taught me about uh, sort of the fears uh, that r adults have in their lives. It taught me things about adult life that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of otherwise. I think a lot about uh, the book The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which was the first book that taught me that parents can be just as insecure uh, uh, about themselves as kids are. That was a valuable lesson for me to learn, and there are all sorts of different lessons. As you say, it helps sometimes if a parent knows going in that this is the lesson that the book is going to teach. But I sometimes wonder – I wondered at the end of reading your piece if in the end it maybe wasn't better to be surprised like this because – would you have necessarily had that conversation absolutely with your daughter? Not. Yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely not. Um, and although at the time I, at the time we read the first book, the, the book about the death of the cat, I wondered, you know, is this too early for her to find out about this? Did I really want to like add this to whatever other stuff she's worrying about today? But in a way, the fact that it came up as, a, as the death came up as something that happens before she had to encounter it herself probably better that way, right? Rather than something she loves just disappearing with no foreshadowing. I think so. And also that she asked questions. I mean, we've kind of had the opposite experience, which is that our kids have been very ma matter of fact about death. They both have 
friends whose fathers died, which is, you know, kind of a horrible, strange coincidence. Uh, but I don't know what they think or what they know. And I've kind of I've kind of played it like I do with most things, which is like wait for them to ask me questions. But they, you know, they say very matter of factly, so and so's dad died. And so far, they haven't like probed beyond that. I think the fact that like, if you had just been reading that book and your daughter probably hadn't stopped and asked what's death, you would have just kept reading, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, presumably, like one of the things about kids is is that they're sometimes pretty good at deciding what they need to know and what they don't need to know. Yeah. And presumably, like there are implications of their friend's father's dying that they really don't want to pursue right now. Correct. I think so. All right. Well, the piece is called And People. It is on Slate. We'll link to it on our show page. It is a very lovely piece. Um, And Plus members, if you're a member of Slate Plus, uh, our Plus bonus segment today is going to be Gabe reading the piece. So you will be able to hear it in its entirety or read it on Slate. Thank you so much, Gabe, for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, let's move on to our contest. Listeners, we have a contest for you. We have a giveaway. We are very lucky to have gotten two copies of the DVD Blu-ray combo pack of Paddington, which is just out now, a movie that listeners will recall I really, really loved and my kids loved too. I wrote a fawning review of it uh, for Slate, and I recommended it on the show. It is a totally charming, funny, and sweet children's movie that, I really liked as well. It also features maybe the best performance that Nicole Kidman has given in like 15 years. It's totally great. We have two DVDs to give away. One of the things I really loved about Paddington is that it got my kids. It portrays London as this lively, exciting, multicultural, amazing place. And it got my kids really excited about the idea of traveling to faraway places because I said one day we might be able to go to London. That's a thing that it really means a lot to me. And so I was excited to see them excited about a foreign country. So listeners, we want you to email us at mom and dad at slate.com and tell us your dream destination, your dream foreign destination with your children, the place in the world that you want your children to experience more than any place else. Tell us where it is and tell us why. We'll read some of the best answers on our next episode and the two most awesome answers will get these free DVD Blu-ray combo packs of Paddington. So email us at mom and dad at slate.com. Also, call us, because each week we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us, leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. On to this week's listener call from Nicole in the Bay Area. I have a three-year-old, and I was just having a conversation with a friend about how to help my daughter grow up uh, with a positive body image while also being someone who enjoys doing the things that help you be healthy, like work out. I feel like we're doing a good job at modeling pretty good eating habits, but I don't particularly like to work out. And um, I had a lot of body issues growing up. I do my best to talk positively about my own body and to talk positively, of course, about my daughter's body. But I love advice on how to raise kids who love exercise, love using their bodies in ways that are healthy. Okay. First of all, I know boys have body issues too, and the number of boys struggling with eating disorders and body image issues is on the rise, but this is the number one and only reason I am happy to not have girls. Uh, Like most women I know, and like it sounds like Nicole, I have tons of weight and body image baggage, and the thought of waiting through all of that to transfer only positive vibes and messages to daughters feels totally overwhelming. 
but the trap, and you can tell me if this is right, Dan, because you actually have the daughters. The trap seems to be how to impart to your kids the importance of being healthy, fitness, and healthy eating without focusing them on their bodies in an unhealthy way. Uh, and to me, it, there are a couple of things. I mean, it starts when the kids are really young. And for girls, not focusing on the way they look with all the talk of how pretty they are, how you know little and cute they are seems really important. I definitely grew up in my family as like the cute little one and ended up putting a lot of self-worth into being little in size. So even like positive talk about a young girl's body can actually be a negative reinforcing this idea that there's such a thing as a good or a bad body. As for exercise, Nicole, I would not talk about physical fitness in terms of working out. I think doing things like taking regular uh, family walks after dinner or weekend bike rides, just like incorporating fun outings that involve being outside and moving your bodies is great and doesn't at all need to be explicitly connected to weight or body or even fitness at all. Uh, and And last thing is that if I had girls, I think I would try to steer them toward a team sport like soccer or softball and away from ballet and gymnastics. I don't, you know, I'm prepared to get some emails for saying this, I'm sure, but I was really into ballet for my entire childhood all the way into high school when I, you know, then bloomed and had a woman's body and it was kind of traumatizing. And though I loved ballet, it definitely screwed with my brain. I think that your point about not focusing on working out as the as the definition of what exercise and activity is is really important. And one benefit that you have, Nicole, that almost every parent has is that almost every kid naturally is excited about playing. And playing can take many forms. And some kids like card games and some kids like reading aloud. But almost all kids like to do physical things with their bodies. And so finding ways to harness that energy and to get them excited about moving around is really what matters. That's the kind of exercise and activity that kids need most of all. And taking walks is a great idea. Family bike rides are a great idea. But just running around and being crazy or dancing are also things that kids love to do and that help to teach them that using their body is fun and and uh, and, a, and a pastime that the entire family can do together. Um, we, you know, we have girls and this is something that we are starting to face uh, now as Lyra is 10 and Harper is 7 and they both have had questions about their bodies and they, they both are, we can already start to see body issues bloom in each of them and it's very frustrating and upsetting to us. Um, this morning we were walking to school this very morning, even before I heard Nicole's call, and Lyra was talking a lot about how she was worried about that her that her upper arms were fat. And I and for and I first, of course, thought to myself, Jesus Christ, what the hell is going on? Um, but we tried to talk to her as much as we could in ways that I'm sure Nicole's familiar with about um, anyone who tells you that that your kind of body or anyone's kind of body is better than anyone else's doesn't know what they're talking about because as Lyra said, bodies are bodies. It also made me feel, uh, Allison, maybe you can tell me whether this is a good idea or a bad idea that Lyra could maybe use a little more radical feminism in her life. Uh, and so I told her on the way to school today that, you know, the idea that women's bodies should look a certain way is a fiction perpetuated by the patriarchy and the cosmetics industry to keep women subjugated. And, for Lyra, that played pretty well, actually. She's a person <laughs> who likes the idea that adults are talking to her about adult things and that she is getting, you know, she is a kid who, she's the only kid I know who reads um, parenting books, like parenting books for parents, because she thinks she's getting like the inner look at what parents think about 
their kids. Yeah. Um, so she liked that. And so you may find certain ways into this conversation with your kids that make more sense. I would imagine um, I haven't read like teen magazines, girls magazines in forever. I don't even know. Do girls still read magazines? But I, I would imagine that they've changed some just like Cosmo has become like far more feminist. I, I would imagine that those magazines had changed, maybe not in the so drastically in the way that the models look, but like that some of what you just said to her would sort of match up with things that she's reading in like, you know, whatever, just like pop culture things aimed at her. I hope so. I do get the impression that feminism is presented uh, to girls mostly as girl power. Yeah. Right. That it's like what you should do is you should read history stories about Amelia Earhart and how great she was. And I think that's great. And I do want her to read those. But I also would love for her to just read some like feminist tracts, right. honestly. Right. I think that would really do her some good. Wait, I have a quick question. I know we have to move on, but and uh, but how do you deal with when you are dieting? Like, do your kids know about your attempts yeah. to lose weight? Yeah. Uh, they know that we we phrase it solely, I think, in terms of we are trying to eat more healthy. I don't think I've ever said I'm on a diet. I think we like keep our Weight Watchers app hidden from them when we're using it. I think we really, really do our best to explain to them that what we're trying to do is eat healthy. And it helps that now the kind of healthy eating or the kind of weight control that we're doing doesn't revolve around like prepackaged meals or things like that, where it's really obvious that you're not eating real food. We are trying, our way of trying to eat more healthy is cooking more and eating more meals as a family and eating more vegetables, all of which are things that I would be perfectly happy for my kids to witness me doing. And we try and keep the actual talk of God, how fat am I today uh, to a minimum around them. Which is to say we have our – I have my own weight issues and body <laughs> issues to deal with apparently. So, Nicole, if you have any tips for me, let me know. <laughs> okay. Please call us with your questions, 424-255-7833. Let's move on to our second segment. Sunday is Mother's Day. And, well, my husband told me yesterday that he thinks Mother's Day is anachronistic like Secretary's Day. I still plan to milk it for all it's worth. To honor motherhood, Dan and I invited a bunch of Slate staffers – Sleetsters to tell us about their favorite moms in pop culture who set up unrealistic expectations and ridiculously high bars or (laughs) (laughs) really screw it up and make us look good and are beloved nonetheless. But before we invite the rest of Slate to tell us their faves, what's yours, Dan? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights um, as played by Connie Britton. She is very warm, but very strict. Um, She has no nonsense. I like that she is real and she makes mistakes. Uh, That's a thing about all the characters on that show. They sometimes make terrible mistakes, but they are very relatable as a result. Um, And she also has what I think is probably the best ever on-screen sex talk with her daughter in a very memorable episode. And you know that, you know, just because you're having sex this one time... doesn't mean that you have to all the time and you know if it ever starts feeling like he's taking it for granted or you're not having you're not enjoying it you can stop anytime and if you ever break up with Matt it's not like you know you have to have sex with the next boy necessarily she seems great she seems like a mom that everyone would love to have plus she has amazing hair how about you does she remind you of your mom or your wife 
Yes, she reminds me of my wife, of course. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, my favorite show growing up was Family Ties, which had a really awesome working mom in Elise Keaton, played by Meredith Baxter. And action! I was held up at work. Traffic was awful. How am I supposed to cook an impressive dinner for eight important friends in 20 minutes? What about the proper penguin? <laughs> oh, I forgot! Thank you, Sir Penguin! <laughs> she worked full-time as an architect. She worked from home with her public TV station managing husband. And I, their house was, you know, kind of full of ideas and debate. And the Keaton marriage was pretty egalitarian, if I'm remembering it correctly. And so I loved her. I mean, I loved them all. Looking back, thinking back, I mean, I haven't watched that show in so long. I don't think they actually struggled with the work-life balance issues that, like, a family like that actually would. And a family no. like, you know, families like ours do. So I guess in that way, it was TV, not real life. But, um, but I, really, I really love Elise. Yeah, the sort of magic of that show was that she was always available. Right, just, she was always just around. when she needed to be. Her plant, she like had her, you know, her plans, her blueprints like laid out on every table in the house. But right, yeah, somehow she had made those when all the kids were off doing something else. Right. But no, she is a great mom. But I agree that she is exactly the kind of mom that I would sort of think would make you like subtly feel sometimes. Well, why aren't I like Elise Keaton? Why can't I pull that off? Right. Probably if I watched again today, I would feel that way. But when I was growing up, I thought, awesome, awesome family, awesome mom. Hey, as a role model for kids hoping to be moms someday, I think that she is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's throw it to some other Slatesters, and let's hear who they thought were the absolute best pop culture moms of all time. Okay. First up, we have Laura Anderson. My pop culture mom is Emma Thompson's character from Love Actually. Her name is Karen. She's married to Alan Rickman. Rip it. What is rip it? it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to it. All right, I'll rip it. God, that's a surprise. What is it? <laughs> it's a CD. Joni Mitchell. Wow. To continue your emotional education. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> that's great. My brilliant wife. Ah, yes. And Love Actually is a terrible movie, but I've seen it like <laughs> 10 times. And their storyline is the best storyline because Emma Thompson is the stay-at-home mom. She's a great mom. She like, She's extremely invested in her kid's life. She like makes a papier-mâché lobster costume for her daughter for the nativity play. And she you know, chooses gifts to give to her children's friends. She's very invested, but she also has this life outside of her kids, which I think is rare in pop culture representations of stay-at-home moms. And the storyline is mostly about her relationship with her husband and the fact that she still loves her husband, but they've run into a sort of bumpy patch. And um, she's really funny. And I would love to have Emma Thompson as my mom. <laughs> Do you think that it's really the character or just that we all would like to have Emma Thompson right, who as would our it? mom? I think yeah. it's mostly that we all want to have Emma Thompson as our mom. But it's a good character. Too. I mean, it's a, it's a, I would want to see a movie just about Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. And I'm not sure why no one has made that movie yet. Get yeah, on actually, it, Hollywood. Yeah, actually, that would be much better, I think. Much, much better. I mean, in a way, we did. Sense and Sensibility is kind of about Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman, except for that they don't fall in love with each other in the end. Yeah, we need Which to, they should have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Allison and Dan. All right. Next in the studio, Jessica Winter. Hello. Hi. So my uh, vote for the greatest pop culture mom of all time is Annie Johnson in Douglas Sirk's movie Imitation of Life. Oh, my God. 
Now there's a kind of kissing that's not careless and doesn't lead to harm. When the two people kissing are nice and right, kissing is part of falling in love, and the Lord wants his children to fall in love. When they're old enough and got sense enough, then kissing is like yeast is to bread. Played by Juanita Williams. Um, Annie is a black housekeeper whose daughter Sarah Jean is very light-skinned and can pass as white. This is in the 50s in America. Um, and Annie tries very, very hard in a loving and non-judgmental way to help Sarah Jane accept who she is and who her mother is. And those two things are very, uh, they're inextricably linked. Her identity and her mother's identity are, are things that Sarah Jane has to learn to accept and, and she can't. Um, and over the course of the movie, um, Annie has to absorb the pain of having a child who rejects her and rejects her own identity. And she eventually lets go of Sarah Jane. She gives up trying to make Sarah Jane be her child. And when Annie dies, it's strongly implied that letting go of her daughter has sort of been tantamount to letting go of life, too. And at the end of Imitation of Life, Annie has a wonderfully elaborate memorial service with a brass band and Mahalia Jackson singing Trouble of the World. And... um, (laughs) Sarah Jane feels this volcanic sense of regret and grief at what she gave up. And um, the scene, Annie's funeral, which closes the film, is this sort of like obscenely gorgeous indictment of hundreds of years of American racism and what it's done to moms and little girls and families for all time. To me, Annie Johnson is not only an example of a loving and giving and imaginative mother um, who does her very, very best with an impossible situation, but she's also symbolic of something bigger, and therefore she's the greatest mom in pop culture of all time. Whoa, that blew Elise Keaton out of the water. <laughs> uh, that was as, as judged purely by the degree of difficulty a mother was facing and being a good mother. That was great. But I also like your vision of motherhood as um, both supportive and martyring and the and the the way a mother becomes supreme is by basically ascending into heaven to be mourned by all uh, who should have known what a great mother she was all along. Yeah, that's true. Um, Jessica, that was incredible. And I, and you need to collect yourself, I think for a moment, but thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thanks. Jessica. All right. Next up we have Forrest Wickman. Forrest. Hey, so my pop culture mother also faced a, a great degree of difficulty, but I would like to just begin by reading from the Alien vs. Predator wiki, uh, which says, uh, A queen is a large form of the species Xenomorph XX121 that serves as the mother and leader of a xenomorph hive. Queens are the largest and most intelligent xenomorph cased, and their appearance differs from that of smaller variants with a pair of extra arms growing from her chest and a large head crest extending rearwards from their skull. So are you claiming, for us that a- the aliens of Alien are the great pop culture mothers? Oh, my God! <laughs> I would like you to let me finish. Oh, sorry. Um, Xenomorph features are also considerably larger (laughs) on a queen, including her jaws, which are filled with razor-sharp, transparent teeth several inches long, and her inner jaw, the maw of which can be almost as large as a human head. And so all of this is why Ripley from Aliens, uh, the second Alien film, is the best pop culture mother, uh, because not only does she defeat the queen Xenomorph, um, but she does so with one of the great cheer lines of all time. 
which is uh, get away from her, you bitch. Yeah. Um, which she uses when she takes down the queen xenomorph, saves Newt, her surrogate daughter. And uh, that line is so great. It's also been imitated a lot by other great pop culture mothers, such as Molly Weasley and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Actually, uh, a terrible pop culture mother. But this can be a different debate, not for Mother's Day. With a, with a good line that at least got lots yeah, of yeah. cheers, even though it was basically just recycling a line. So mother is really earlier. all about one-liners. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> well, that's no, a real lesson. <laughs> it's also about, like... Uh, uh, okay. Destroying... So, first of all, not only is Ripley just an incredible badass who's able to defeat anything and everything in the entire universe, but also she's, like, very nurturing. There's a great scene in that movie where she bonds with Newt about their shared trauma over the xenomorph attacks. As so mothers throughout history have done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, if anybody else is going to bring this up, of course, the fact that she is an, abdo- an adoptive mother makes her no less a mother. Correct. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yes. All right. Thank you, Forrest, for that spirited argument. Thanks, Thank you. Forrest. Let's see what Katie Waldman has. Hi, Katie. Hi. So I have two pop culture moms who are tied for first place in my book. And the first is from Empire, Cookie Lion, who is just an amazing role model and accepts Jamel and is tough but loving to Hakeem and defends the brood and is just very awesome. And I would love to have a mother like Cookie Lion. And then my second pop culture mother is the runaway bunny mom, who in her kind of deranged way demonstrates so much perseverance and imagination. No matter what form the bunny will take, she will respond and be there. And it's kind of heartwarming and kind of terrifying, but I admire that. So those are my two moms. Awesome. Those are great. I love both of those as examples of moms who just won't quit no matter what, no matter what stands in their way. All right. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Next up, Laura Bennett. My choice for the best pop culture mom is Lucille Bluth. If you're saying I play favorites, you're wrong. I love all my children equally. I don't care for Joe. The matriarch of the oh, Arrested Development one. Plan. <laughs> I feel strongly about this choice. Uh, well, first of all, just you know, as a character, she's endlessly entertaining. You know, whether she's having an affair with her husband's brother, or coddling Buster, or you know, misappropriating Bluth family funds. But most importantly, she, you know, as sort of the matriarch of this screwy clan, she really embodies most pointedly the show's whole twisted take on family, which is how you can sort of torment each other and still love each other more than anybody else in the world. So, you know, my my feeling is that she might be cartoonish, but the message she's delivering about family is still more realistic than all the rose-colored BS that we're getting from all these other eternally nurturing moms of pop culture. And she's truly hilarious. What other mom has delivered a line as good as, I want to cry so bad, but I don't think I can spare the moisture. (laughs) That's a great recommendation. It also points out, which I hadn't really considered, that best pop culture mom does not really mean best mom. Just uh, most entertaining mom yeah. entirely. Yeah. I have a, th- my only problem with this is that, is that I have a real problem in my memory now differentiating between Lucille Bluth and Mallory Archer, who Jessica Walter also plays, um, the mom of Archer on the spy comedy Archer, who is also entertaining like Lucille Bluth, but if possible, an even worse mom in terms of actually raising a family into um, a whole set of human beings than Lucille Bluth is. But she definitely is, uh, of all the moms who you would want to have a martini with, I can't imagine one better for that. Right. Also, Lucille Bluth shows how mom, how needy 
mom's parents, like grown-up parents, can be. Like, she seriously needs things from her kids, right? From Buster especially, but from all of them. That and that you don't usually see. Definitely. I mean, maybe what we're discovering is that Jessica Walter is the best pop culture mom. <laughs> Wait, she has she has real competition with Emma right. Thompson, who we previously declared the best pop culture mom. All right. Uh, but they're very different moms. All right, thanks, Laura. Thank you. All right, next up we have Laura Bradley. My favorite pop culture mom is actually Kitty Foreman from that 70s show. You know, your mom does the work of five nurses. This place would fall apart without her. And she's so funny. Oh, yeah, she is. Um, wait, no, she's not. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she draws these funny cartoons. <laughs> See? Now, I warn you, it's a little racy, but... <laughs> oh, honey, you don't need to see that. It's just, um... A certain body part has been shoved up another body part for comic effect. <laughs> I think she's one of the most memorable moms on recent television. I think her laugh, obviously, is probably the first thing people remember. But she's actually also a very warm and loving character. And I think the biggest strength she has is that she's really able to balance this very sweet, nurturing personality that she shows toward both of her children despite their quirks against this sort of really tough, biting wit that she uses against her husband, Red Foreman, all the time. Uh, one of the most memorable episodes, I think, for Kitty is actually when she stands up to Red because she's so mad that Eric is moving out and she uses his trademark insult dumbass against him before storming off, first in the wrong direction and then in the right direction. But I think that really embodies how she can get angry but still be warm at the same time. So you could might as well be speaking Martian because I've never watched a single Yeah, I also have never show. watched it. But so I'm curious, you know, one of one of the things that sometimes drives people crazy about a period show like Mad Men, for example, is the way that it sort of seems to laugh at, say, for example, the parenting notions of a different time. Is is the mom in that 70s show, is she an actual 70s mom with 70s parenting philosophies? Or is she presented more as a modern character who we can appreciate for her modernity, even though she's trapped in the 70s world? I think she's pretty modern in the sense that she definitely has flaws that appear on screen. And maybe this is appropriate to 70s mom since I'm a little too young to identify I can't tell you but I can tell you she's got a serious propensity for drinking Kahlua Mm -hmm. and despite being a nurse she does enjoy she does uh up until I think season three she does smoke although she tries to do it surreptitiously most of the time but I think she's got sort of this conflict between being fiercely protective of her children but also really wanting to be there for all of her kids including their friends Uh, Eric's friends spend most of their time down in the basement, and that's where most of the uh, pot sequences happen, uh, which I believe she participates in separately from them. The parents do a couple times. So from what I've heard about the 70s, that might not be too inaccurate. Uh, I'm pretty amazed that uh, that a millennial has chosen basically Allison, our mom, like a 70s mom. Yeah. Yeah. As her ideal mom. Fascinating. All right. Thank you very much, Laura Bradley. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. All right, so this is our final person, right? Yes, I believe so. Next, we have Aisha Harris. Aisha, who's your favorite pop culture mom? My favorite pop culture mom is um, the mother from Dumbo. Uh, her name is Mrs. Jumbo. And um, I I think what makes her such a great mother is, uh, for one thing, she only says two words in the entire movie. She says, Jumbo Jr., Oh, Jumbo Junior, huh? <clears throat> Happy birthday, dear Jumbo Junior. That is the name of Dumbo, or the, the given name of Dumbo. And um, all of the interaction she has with Dumbo is completely just 
based off of body language. So you see her caressing him. The use of the trunk is very um, beautiful and flourishing. And she's just a really fierce mother. Double is made fun of because of his huge ears, and she fights for him from the moment it's discovered that his ears are huge. And then later on, when um, Dumbo is uh, being uh, on display and for the circus with all the kids around, the kids start making fun of him, and he doesn't fully understand it. Uh, so he starts laughing, but she's like, they're making fun of you, and then winds up beating up one of the kids and like grabbing him with her trunk and spanking him, which leads her to go into exile. Like they they put her in a little like elephant jail. And so Dumbo can't see his mother. It's really, really sad. And and then there's a moment later where she he visits her while she's in that jail and like he can't see her, but she can like reach out and they touch trunks. And that's like one of the most touching moments I've ever seen. It makes me cry. I just actually rewatched a little bit of it today and I was like tearing up a little bit because it's just so so sad but it's also like one of the most beautiful moments in and not just disney but in like movie history i think that is a beautiful pick thank you aisha for that idea of motherhood as a silence that's total silence (laughs) and hugs hey you know you know she loves him she doesn't have to say a word uh, those are all really great. I, of course, believe that mine was more right than everyone else's. Um, Allison, you are definitely wrong. But we want to hear from you guys, listeners. Please email us at slate.com with your favorite movie, favorite movie moms and uh, or pop culture moms from, t- from TV, from books, from movies, from anywhere. Um, and we will discuss some of them on our next episode. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there uh, in our listening audience. Happy Mother's Day. All right. Recommendations. I will go first today. Okay. Um, I recommend going to a high school musical with your children. We went last weekend to the Yorktown High production of West Side Story, and we all totally loved it. We loved it. It You just high school crashed? Like you didn't know anyone there? We didn't know anyone in the show. I mean, it is the high school our kids will eventually go to. Um, And I think that there were probably some older siblings of kids they know, although I didn't know any of them offhand. We just thought it would be a fun thing to do. Um, It's not the best West Side Story I've ever seen, although I will bet that I will never see in my entire life a better cast Anita than the total queen bee who played Anita in the show. But the songs are great, obviously, so we love listening to the songs. And the kids, our kids, were completely crazy for the show and for the fact that the people on stage were children only a little bit bigger than them doing an actual honest-to-God musical. Their minds were completely blown. They had the greatest time. Uh, It was super fun. It was a super fun family night out. And uh, we really loved it. And so it is the season right now in the spring when many, many, many high schools around the country are doing their high school musicals. If you live in a community like ours, they often put signs up in the median of a road that you drive down every day right past the high school telling you about the musical so consider shelling out the seven bucks or whatever it costs for tickets and take your kids to it because it's totally fun uh that's great that sounds really fun uh, i think i feel like bye bye birdie would be a good one yeah yeah that's a, a school near us is doing bye bye birdie i think we might try and go in two weeks uh, my recommendation is for a book, uh, which I was reminded of in in our conversation with Gabe Roth. I mean, it's the flip of those books, but it's called On the Day You Were Born. Have you read this book? Do you have this book? I don't. I don't know it. Um, it's a beautiful board book by Deborah Fraser. It's very abstract about birth, kind of like with a mix of science and biology and also like spiritual um, and poetic 
explanations of birth. I mean, it's not, it's like a, it's like a, it's a, just like, it's a poem, essentially. It's not really so much of a story. But I was actually given this book by the parents of a childhood friend of mine who passed away at, around the same time that Harry was born. And so it had a lot of sort of, you know, sentimental, emotional meaning to me because of that. But also every time I read it, and I had put it away for a long time, and recently, like, Wally grabbed it out of the back of a shelf or something, and I just started reading it to him. I had never read it to him. It's just really beautiful every time it makes me choke up I don't you know I don't know what he gets from it but it's a it's a it's a beautifully illustrated book and a beautiful way to sort of think and talk about birth that sounds great all right that's a great recommendation and that is our show please email us at mom and dad at slate.com to ask questions to suggest topics to suggest guests you think we ought to talk to and also don't forget to email us your dream world travels to win your copy of paddington and give us a call if you have a question you want us to answer on the air the number is 424-255-7833 that's 424-255-RUDE Please subscribe on iTunes. That Just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. And leave a comment or a rating on iTunes because that really helps people find the show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to Gabriel Roth and the Slate Culture team for being our guests today. Thanks to our intern, Jesse Chase and Tabor. Our engineer, Henry Malofsky. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, our managing producer, Joel Meyer, and our executive producer, Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.